everybody, I'm Steve Weens, and this is my podcast where I explore humanity, spirituality, and mystery one word at a time. For more about my work, my writing, my books, my preaching, and all that good stuff, head on over to steveweens.com. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to This Good Word. I am so excited to have Elizabeth Hagen with us today. Hey, Elizabeth. How are you, my friend? Hi, Steve. How are you? Oh, man, I'm good. Uh, so Elizabeth wrote a book uh, called Birthed, Finding Grace Through Infertility. And we connected because uh, my wife Mary and I, as many of you know, uh, went through about seven years of, in- of infertility. And so there is a kind of underground club of people who have been through infertility because uh, once you get there, you realize that you're not alone, even though you feel like you're alone. So um, I was happy to find Elizabeth really excited to read her book and um, it, it you're going to hear some of her story. It's really, really amazing. So Elizabeth uh, is an ordained Baptist, American Baptist minister who lives outside of the normal vocational boxes. Sometimes she serves churches through short-term interim pastorates and she often travels to support her husband, Kevin, in his work with the American Diabetes Association and on behalf of Our Courageous Kids, a foundation that she founded in 2015 to provide educational opportunities for kids living in international orphanages. And she always writes, and she's a great writer. Uh, You can find her words about soul care and advocacy over on her blog, which is called Preacher on the Plaza, and on the web at Christian Century, Patheos, and the Young Clergy Women's Journal, and Fidelia's Sisters. Uh, She's contributed to three books. This is what a preacher looks like, the modern, the modern Magnificat, and there's and there's a woman in the pulpit. And she was a third grade Bible drill champion. Yes, I was. Oh, that's awesome. Well, let's let's dive in, Elizabeth. Uh, Again, I I I loved I loved your book, Birthed: Finding Grace Through Infertility. And uh, I want to ask you one of the hardest parts about any infertility journey is living in a community with others who have kids uh, when you can't really describe uh, your your struggle because they have kids, they don't get it. But you but you talked about that a lot in your book. So how did you deal with the bitterness that comes in watching your friends and family announce pregnancy after pregnancy? Well, I was being honest. I would say I probably didn't do a great job um, of it. It is just so painful. Um, it's a it's an experience beyond words um, because I think not only is it people think well it's about jealousy in the sense well these people have something that you want and you can't have or can't have right now and people think well it's just about that but. For me, it was a it was about a loneliness. It was a deep loneliness of wanting so desperately to be in a community of other mothers, um, to do things that I knew were in line with the person who I was and my soul, and not be invited to those groups. Um, and it, it's not necessarily that I couldn't go barge in on my friends who had kids play groups, but it just felt awkward. They didn't know what to say to me. I didn't know what to say to them. And especially it hit home, and I write a lot about this in birth, when some of my best friends um, began to have kids and sort of the tension of how we communicated with one another, what they shared about their lives, what I shared about mine, because ultimately I had to learn how to make peace with the life I had, not the life I wanted. 
And in that, it sort of changed the dynamics of my own community. Um, I often found that I was my best, my new best friends were people who were older than me, who I wasn't going to worry were going to tell me next month that they were pregnant. Yeah. Uh, and or older couple friends, you know, that were our parents' age became, you know, really important to my husband and I. And so, you know, there was tension in that of we weren't the same people that we always were and they weren't the same people that they always were. But yet we we wanted to still be friends, but we didn't quite always know how. And it was always a hard line to walk. Um, and I, I'd say now as I'm signing books, you know, and giving them to some of my closest friends, I'm finding myself almost writing apology notes in there. I'm sorry that my own pain <laughs> kept me from being a good friend to you during these years. Um, you know, and some of the most gracious replies to that have been, well, you know, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say, but you know, I really appreciate you saying that to me. I missed you. Um, so, you know, I remember when my wife Mary, uh, was years into infertility, she actually had to set a boundary finally that she said she wasn't going to go to any more baby showers. Uh, and it wasn't because she didn't like the people or wasn't excited she just literally couldn't do it did you have to set any kind of boundaries like that that maybe looked you know quote-unquote selfish but it was just something you had to do absolutely I don't I mean I I think once our struggle started once I had some of my early miscarriages as we were trying to figure out why that was happening and what was going on with me I don't think I went to a baby shower for about seven years Um, I would always send a gift I, w- I mean, I didn't want um, to to not show that I was excited for them, but I never, I never went. I really never went. Um, and maybe that would have uh, be seen as unchristian of me <laughs> that I couldn't get over it or something. But and I, and also, I never went to the hospital. I mean, some of our closest friends were having babies. My husband could. I never could go um, when they were first born. Um, and then, sort of, the first meeting of the kids was always awkward. I mean, the whole thing just yeah. always hard. Um, but I will say it was about a year ago. Um, I did host my first baby shower slash attend my first baby shower in about eight years. It was for one of my closest friends who I, whose name is Lucy, who I write about in the book. And, um, that was, that was a very hard thing, but you know, I think when we love people, we're called to extravagant acts of love. And she's one of those people that deserved, um, all of that extravagance out of me. Um, and I mean, I'm glad I did it, but very hard. Yeah. And those kind of things, even when you feel called to it, they take a lot out of you. Um, Oh yeah. I I was in a ball. Like, I can't believe I I had a baby shower at my house. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) File that under things I never thought I would do. Right. No, I Um, mean, I had like my mother's chicken salad recipe and (laughs) thinking, I mean, anyway, I tried. I really tried. Okay, so you are a pastor, which I think makes it even a little bit more complicated because you uh, have to be in a congregation. And so um, you you write about how your infertility journey intersected your role as a pastor at a local congregation. And can you talk about how the church did a good job in uh, caring for you and then maybe things that you wish would have gone better? Well, it, it was an interesting intersection because, you know, as a pastor, there are certain things that are a part of your job, like yeah. visiting, you know, the hospital when someone has a baby or doing baby dedications um, or baptisms, whatever your tradition is. And 
And so I always knew that it was my job. And so it was important for me to show up at the hospital if it was my job. Uh, it was important for me to hold the baby for a service if it was my job or, or attend children's Sunday school because it was my job. I could always make myself do those things because it was my job, Yeah. Um, even though it was quite difficult. Um, and and so I guess that was helpful. I um, At the time when I was going through most of the struggle, I was the um, solo minister at a congregation who didn't have a huge children's ministry program. Although, of course, you know, that's what every church wants, right? <laughs> Lots of young families. I was actually sort of glad we didn't have many because, yeah. I mean, if, if we had, I would have been doing, you know, baby services all the time. And I'm really not sure my soul could have handled that. But as far as your question about how the church handled um or helped me or um, could have done a better job. I honestly um, didn't really let them in on that pain um, because for me, showing up at church and being the pastor was something I felt good at and something I could do well. And during a season of my life where I was just so beaten down and felt so ashamed um, of not being able to achieve something, I'm a good overachiever, yeah. <laughs> I hate to admit it's true. Um, you know, it felt like church was my safe place. And so to bring in my infertility to that, it it almost felt like ruining a good thing. But I will say that um, I, I write in the acknowledgement several names of some people from that congregation who I really appreciate, especially because of their support during this. And those are the people that saw, saw me crying walking to the parking lot or noticed that I wasn't myself when they came to the office. And they would, you know, make me talk about it even when I didn't want to. And um, for that, I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, and I think it's important to remember that your pastors are people too. Yeah. Um, and you know, e sometimes even the sermons they preach while they're hopefully writing it for, for the congregation, for you, um, sometimes it comes out of our own deepest pain and struggles with God. And, and there was a lot of wrestling with God I was doing through those years and working some of that out in my own sermons especially around Advent and Easter, especially. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it would been, it would have been good. I mean, I think this is just good in general, you know, to pay attention to how your pastor's preaching and, and where they seem to go and where they have energy and, you know, and ask them, does this come from anywhere in your life? And it doesn't mean that maybe that's not the appropriate way to share, but there, there are invitations to deeper connection with your minister. If you're willing to ask those good questions. And, yes, I agree. At the end of your book, you write about an Easter sermon that you preached that where you kind of talked about uh, the time that you had to tell God, I'm not sure I believe in you anymore. Um, yeah. And that seemed to have a big impact. Uh, talk about that. Well, um, not to give the book away. Or anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Buy the book. I know, buy the book, yes. But um, no, I mean, I would say that um, uh, Easter and um you know, I'm a big metaphor person and, um, you know, the whole idea of the resurrection was something that was really meaningful and something I thought a lot about and, and it appears in a lot of different places in the story. And to have to preach when we felt so much of our life was so dead and we kept hitting dead ends after dead ends, we didn't know where God was, we didn't know what our path was. We felt like God had forgotten us. And then to have to be the proclaimer who stands in the pulpit on certain Easter's and say, you know, hoorah, you know, he lives and, you know, there's always new life that's going to come out of dark places. Um, 
and, and really have a hard time believing that because you don't see it in your own life. Um, that was my experience for many years preaching. Um, but a true resurrection moment for me was the year, um, which is, I write about at the end of the book where I stood in the pulpit in a congregation in a, in a particular area of the country where we had moved, um, that for, had been another desert, a a part of a, a larger desert season in our life where I wasn't able to work because I was in a place where people didn't think women should be pastors. And, and, and I just felt so beaten down, but to be in a congregation that accepted me for who I was, that celebrated my gifts and wanted me to be their pastor and to talk about resurrection and to believe it from the top of my head to the bottom of my toe. I mean, that was just, you know, I could have just stood in the pulpit and cried, you know, knowing that I'd believed it, um, was just so powerful because I had been in a place where I didn't believe. And, um, I, that was two years ago. And last Easter, I I had the chance to preach, um, as well at a different congregation. And I had the same experience. And I just think it's just so powerful, you know, as preachers and pastors, when, you know, we can be real with our congregation and say, you know, this is not some canned speech that I'm giving because it's, you know, the time of year when I'm supposed to give it. But I've lived through this experience and I do believe um, in a God who's making all things new. And I'm here to tell you in my life, this is what has happened. Even if we're not going into all the the details of what that looks like, um, you know, so. Yeah, totally. I love that. Um, And I do think some of our best stuff comes out of, as, as pastors, as preachers, comes out of our deepest pain. I mean, I just think when we allow ourselves to be really honest about where we are and where God is in that, um, even in some of the unfinished uh, business, uh, that's where some of the juicy stuff comes, I think. So, uh, but let's, I want to go back to the be, sort of the beginning of your infertility journey. So you got you and Kevin got married and you started thinking about having kids. And then there was a time where you thought you might be pregnant and you took a pregnancy test, and w- the results were a little ambiguous. So could you share that story? Because I, I, I remember reading it and just underlining it and saying, yes, that's what it's like. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, sometimes pregnancy is very clear for yeah. many people. Yes, you take the test. Yes, you're pregnant. Yeah, you know, call your friends. Hoorah. But in our case, the first time that I had taken a pregnancy test, it was Thanksgiving. I was in a uh, beach house all bundled up with all, you know, how family vacations are where you, you know, you're sharing one bathroom yes. <laughs> and on, on top of each other. And of course I was so excited at the thought that I might be pregnant and couldn't wait till we got home to take a test. And I like sneak out, uh, down the street walking, which is, we were in Florida who walks anywhere in Florida, right, but I did, right, right. you know, to get the test and come, I come back and take it and, thinking, okay, finally, I'm going to know. And then it was one and a half lines. And I'm like, well, you know, what does this mean? I called one of my best friends right away. She's like, oh, that happened to me once. And, you know, um, it ended, I ended up being pregnant. Hold hope, Elizabeth, you know, take some more. And, um, you know, I, I had an appointment scheduled, you know, by coincidence, I guess, with my doctor, you know, a week or so after I got home. And anyway, we got to the bottom of it. The truth was I wasn't pregnant, but just the being so close to the thought and then having your mind just go to all those places of thinking, Oh, what about baby names? What about, you know, when would the child come out? <laughs> you know, when, when would we be parents yep, yep. and all of that expectation and, and it's normal and lovely and so important part of the process. But, 
um, it can be so devastating when you realize that the news is not what you want. And that happened to us um, on many, many different occasions. Yeah. And I remember you wrote about it so well, but I remember reading you, you know, you were, you were late and quite late. I mean, weeks late and you didn't feel good and you felt nauseous. And so you're stacking up all these symptoms like, oh my gosh, you know, like I don't feel good, but that's a good sign, right? And so you're, you're sort of, you're feeling lame, but you're actually feeling happy that you're feeling not good. And, yeah. um, yeah. and, and it's like the, the nausea, it's like, come on, bring yes, it on. Yes. If I in the moment you stop feeling nauseated, you know, which happened to me a couple of times, it was so devastating. Like who, you know, it's so counterintuitive who gets excited about being nauseated, but I, I certainly was. Well, and I would say anyone that's ever been through infertility gets excited. I mean, I remember Elizabeth, this is just so like, I, I can remember. I, so I, I was just more tuned in, I think, than a lot of guys are, I think, to my wife's even cycle or whatever, probably yeah. in a creepy yeah. way. Like I, yeah. I kind of knew when she was due. And so, you know, she would tell me that she was maybe, you know, three or four or five, six days late. And I remember like if if we were in bed at night and then she would go to the bathroom, I would sort of hold my breath and wait, you know, to hear like, and, and if I, I remember this, if, if I heard sort of the crinkling of the opening up of a tampon or whatever, I knew like, Oh no, you know, it's, she's not pregnant. Um, and I think the journey of infertility is just so many thousands of those little moments where you hope and then the hope dies and you hope and the hope dies. You go through actual, um, infertility fertility treatments with a doctor, you get what people don't understand, which you would know. I mean, you get put on all this medication that whacks your body up so that you, you know, um, there were several occasions when there were actual embryos in me and you're on all this medicine that makes you feel nauseous, that makes you feel bloated, makes you feel cramped, like that you, something's growing inside of you and you get, you know, you're just so thrilled about it. Um, but indeed, it's like you can't trust your own instincts anymore. And that is just, I mean, it just is another layer of taking away a part of yourself when you don't even, you can't even know your own body. Um, and you can't. So, Oh, that's so well said. And all the, I mean, when you do IVF, all the needles that get stuck in you and all the procedures and all the hospital visits and all, I think, um, you can't trust your own body. That's, that's true to how I feel like Mary talked to me about it quite a lot, quite a lot. Um, I think part of your, part of your spirit or your soul or something it has to die. At least it did for me because you know, you're taught to resist pain and not to invite it into your life or to not, you know, you don't put a needle in yourself, yeah. you know, just fun. And it's not fun and none of it's, pleasant or positive or happy the only thing the reason why you do it is because you have this big goal in mind that you're you know I felt like I was willing to put my body on the sacrificial altar of motherhood to be you know and and you know you can't complain because it's happening every day and you can't say that you're uh miserable about the fact that you have all these invasive exams by doctors constantly you know and it's almost that resistance in you to be able to use your voice to speak up and say, this isn't right, or this is uncomfortable, or I don't like this, or you have to kind of let all that go to the point in which I think when you're um, through with it or coming out of it or making other decisions about what you're going to do, um, that 
it takes some time, at least it did for me to sort of regain my, my voice, uh, of what was acceptable and what, mm-hmm. what I could handle and, and what was too much. So. Yeah. Gosh. So there came a time and you wrote about this too, where your husband, Kevin said, we got to get away together. I'm, I'm, I'm calling your church. I'm asking for some time off for you. We got to have a weekend, just the two of us. Um, and there was some resistance that you had, um, but you went. So can you tell that story? Cause I think it's, that's just another one of those moments where you either, I think that's a moment of grace that in the middle of mm-hmm. everything, um, you get these gifts. Yeah. I mean, what was interesting, maybe I didn't even frame the story. Now I'm thinking about it as I wrote of it. Um, we had just gone away the weekend before, um, ah. And so it was like, well, we don't deserve this. You know, we had uh, a friend or something had lent us their, you know, lake house or something. And, and we'd gone. Um, and he, um, the, the weekend I write about, my husband was supposed to go to a bachelor party with one of his closest friends, um, you know, many miles away, was on his, you know, had packed his bag, was ready to go. And I, I woke up to him standing over me, telling me to, you know, get dressed. He wasn't going on his trip. And I was thinking, why is he not at the airport? You know, we had a really bad night in which I started saying things like, we need to buy all white furniture since we're not never going to have children. I don't know where that psychotic situation <laughs> coming from we need to buy pointy coffee tables I was like trying to be I don't know what was going on just trying to be positive or something about well if we're never having children what's our lives going to look like you know um and he was concerned about me I probably had too much to drink as well which is not possible <laughs> and, and he, I, I, you know it was a crisis of the fact I hadn't finished the bulletin for Sunday and I knew the church secretary would be calling me yes <laughs> uh, you know so real life and um he had talked to a, a close friend of mine um, and she had made some calls, found a guest preacher, which was amazing. And he basically said uh, to me and not so, um, you know, in a very clear way, you know, our marriage depends on this weekend. You have to go with me. And I was like, Oh goodness. Um, it, it became a real turning point for us because uh, what I, what was not happening in all our infertility struggles was, we weren't talking about the things that were underneath. Of course we were talking about, you know, how I felt about this and I was crying all the time. So he pretty much knew how I felt, but you know, the deeper things like, you know, what if we never can have kids? Um, will you still be with me? Um, what will happen if I lose my faith and I can't be a pastor anymore? You know, will you be with me? Um, what if I told you how I really felt about God or life? Would you still be with me? And so we, had some time to really talk about all those deeper moments. And yeah, it, it was really, really important for us. And, um, actually the same friend, bless her moment of, you know, like you say, a a real gift of grace ended up texting us during the weekend, which some people I later told the story, thought that was weird. You know, was she invading your couple's (laughs) weekend, but she ended up giving us an assignment before we left. And, um, this is a pastor friend as well. And so, I mean, I, I normally would have rolled my eyes at her thinking, you know, kind of like my big sister thinking, I'm not going to do what you, you know, want to do. But I guess I was so desperate that I was like, okay, whatever. So she said, well, why don't you, before you come home, take some time and you write down to each other, you know, what you need and talk about that. What do you need from each other? And what do you promise to each other, you know, throughout this 
journey. And we were in a little town called St. Michael's, Maryland. It's a beautiful little um, community on the bay um, in in Maryland. And so we went out to a nice dinner. The, the dinner actually had um, silverware in these cute little um, bags. And they said St. Michael's something. Um, so we both took our bags home and we had a conversation sitting in a hammock overlooking the water and we talked about what we needed from each other. Um, we called it the St. Michael's covenant and we, um, we each had a copy. We each signed it. We didn't really want it out in our house, but we wanted it in a way that we could see it every day and remind ourselves of it. Um, and we did, we had it in, I had it in my closet, he had it in his. And every day we looked at that and reminded each other of the promises we made. Um, to, to never to, some of those included not going to doctor's appointments alone, being willing to give each other space, both together and apart, um, among some other things. And, and I have to tell you, it's a pretty happy story. I, um, or a full circle moment. I just, we've had them in our closet. That was actually, that happened May, 2010. And, uh, we've moved a couple times since then. We've always taken the papers with us and put them in our closet with these little safety pins <laughs> attached to a hanger. And um, recently we celebrated, we just adopted a daughter and we celebrated her baptism. Um, and as part of that, the the celebration we had with some of our closest friends at our house, um, not only did we um, make these promises to each other on these St. Michael's napkins, pieces of paper. Yeah. We also went to a winery. We just for fun, I guess we toured a winery and we ended up buying some wine. And, and I write about this in the book that we said, um, that we would, um, save the wine until the day that we felt like our project of trying to become parents was complete. And, um, so at the ceremony we had at our house, that was our daughter's baptism. Um, we got out the St. Michael's wine. I found it. Um, it was some really bad wine. I, don't, I mean, we were really <laughs> like rosé that was horrible, but we all drank. Yeah. And the baptism service was really a celebration of all the people that had walked with us through the, through the struggle and, um, and to celebrate our, our new adopted daughter's life. Um, and, and it was, you know, people then said blessings to us with that wine. Anyway, it was just this beautiful, I could cry about it, um, full circle moment to know that, um, you know, no marriage really survives in isolation. And, you know, we all need communities of people that push us, that challenges, challenge us, that help us see the better parts of our spouse that we can't see ourselves. And, um, not only was, you know, my husband's Kevin, a real dear and that weekend and, and in many ways throughout our journey, but so were those friends that yeah. got us there, that, you know, that took our calls and, and helped us through the journey. Oh, that's so great. And, and you're right. It, it oh, marriage in general doesn't, doesn't flourish in isolation, but especially, uh, when you're dealing with infertility, it's just so hard, so hard. So, um, Question, why share this personal of a story? Do you have any fear about putting these words on paper? Uh, talk to me about, about why you did it and the process of writing it out. I was, I mean, I came from a very private family. I mean, I, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying the word period out loud, you know? Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, and this is something I never would have expected I would have done. Um, I'll say that at first. But what I 
realized as we were going through the struggle and I'm a reader. And so I was always looking for resources. What I found was often the books that I encountered were not what I was looking for. If they were secular books and memoirs, there's lots of them on the market about infertility. Many of them, I didn't feel like the, the author made any sort of journey in the process. And I knew that I was in so much pain that if there was not something good, <laughs> I was coming from all this pain and I didn't get somewhere in the end, then I, I, I was like, well, what's the point? And so I wanted a story about a journey. And, and as I looked for um, infertility resources within the Christian tradition, I got really frustrated with many of them um, because it seemed to be that some of them said, well, just pray harder yeah. or, you know, just align yourself with God's will for your life or, you know, everything happens for a reason or all these cliches. And none of those were the balm that I felt like my soul needed. And so anyway, I write about the day in the book um, when I decided that I needed to, to tell the story. And it was really about, um, you know, I, I think a very spiritual moment of, of, of realizing that I had a voice and I needed to use it. And what if I was the one that needed to tell this story? And so, um, I started writing and, um, publishing and long pieces of writing, as you know, are not for the faint of heart. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so it took many years. Um, I thought I was done in 2013. Um, but then my life was kind of in shambles again, um, which I do end up, telling you more about in the book, but I ended up putting the manuscript. I thought I was done. I had 80,000 words on the paper. Woohoo. You know, put it on a shelf and literally I thought, well, that was nice. You know, that was a fun project and thought, well, nothing's ever going to come. Um, and it wasn't until 15 months later, literally, which I guess is the best writing advice people say, you know, put your book aside. I mean, I never wanted to be that person, but it was the best thing because uh, then I picked it up again and I had a couple new eyes read it and say, is this story you think of any value to anyone? And they're all like, yes, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> please do something with it. Um, and so I'm really thankful for the folks at Chalice Press that um, uh, wanted to take this project on this time last year. And here we are. Beautiful. So good. Uh, so Barbara Brown Taylor asks this great question. What is saving your life right now? And I I love that. That's just something we can go back and back to, uh, what were the things that saved your life throughout the many long years of infertility for you? I think friendship, which is what I, I write about a lot. Um, cause sometimes it was easier to connect with my female friends versus my husband. I mean, I had to learn how to do that too, but, um, I had people that showed up in my life and wouldn't let me go. And, you know, I, I couldn't have made it to the next day sometimes without them. I mean, you know, you have to have things that are exciting when everything in your life just feels so depressing when yeah. you're going through, you know, and so I had people that said, well, let's plan a trip, you know, or let's go to a movie or, you know, uh, other things to remind myself that I was more than my fertility status. And, um, and then beginning some new friendships with some older women, um, that really brought up some, uh, things in my life that, that were just really beautiful that I needed to connect with some, some wisdom. And, um, you know, it was just a, it seemed to be just at a point when I, I, I needed something more, God would send a, a new friend into my life. And they, um, 
if I were to dedicate the book to anyone besides my husband, it would be the five women that I write about, um, who are all different ages, um, who showed up for me big time. So good. So good. Uh, so let me ask you this question, uh, because as a person of faith, um, I found quite a few people would sort of sidle up to me and say, how did you make the decision to do IVF? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and I, before I have you answer that, if you want to answer it, obviously this is a person's personal journey. People come to different you know, conclusions about what's quote unquote right and wrong. And we have our own journey about that. But what, what was your journey in terms of, um, pursuing IVF? And did you, did you have any sort of moments where you had to wrestle that one down theologically? I guess I'm unusual when I say that we didn't. Um, I think maybe in retrospect, I think back now, maybe we should have thought through through it some more. But honestly, we knew we had a medical problem and a doctor was offering us a medical solution. And so for us, why would we not pursue a medical solution to our problem? Um, uh, but... I really respect the conversation and know that people come at it from very different angles. Like you're saying, I just know for us, it was, um, it was always, well, is there anything we can do? And if someone was offering us something we could do, um, then we were willing to try it. Um, I think that the, the hardest wrestling for us was when we began considering, um, sperm donation and egg donation, which is a very complicated ethical life decision because it's not just about, well, okay, if it works and you have a child, but what is the long-term effect of that decision and how are you going to begin to prepare for that conversation with your potential future child? And so that was a very complicated part of our journey to decide how we felt about that and, and, and to make a plan before we even you know, pursued that as an option, um, which I think is important. In fact, our doctor sent us to counseling. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if that happened, um, that I'm sure that's been a part of other people's experience as well. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our doctor did as well. And I think that's one of the ethical, I don't know if it's required for folks that go through IVF, but in our program, it was like you had, we, you had to get screened basically. Um, so, um, yeah, I just well, thanks for answering that. And I do for any listeners that are sort of on the on the bubble on that one or on the fence on that one. I think here are two pastors talking with one another and saying that you really do have to wrestle that one down yourself. Yeah, you um, do. You know, it, you're not going to find the the clear cut answer in the Bible or anywhere else about kind of what to do about that. But I think if if you're wrestling through it together, you and your spouse. Um, and you come to a point of, okay, we're, we're going to move forward this way. Um, I would say feel some freedom in doing so, right? Feel some freedom in moving forward according to what you've decided together. Absolutely. And, and I think we have to give each other, you know, the grace when we make decisions that are best for us. And, um, I am a huge fan of adoption. I'm now an adoptive mother, um, for many different reasons, but I think um, a popular misconception in the church is that adoption is somehow um, the holier. only way. Yeah, holier, <laughs> oh, you know, um, or God's, you know, bright solution. 
Um, I know for many couples um, who I've encountered in my ministry, for some couples adoption, given their life situation or, you know, status, you know, or nationality, immigration status, all those things, it's just possible. Um, and so I think we need to give those people um, uh, very, a lot of grace too to be able to make decisions that are best for them and their family and not to hold the holier thou label over someone just because they think differently than us. I, amen. I remember getting an email from someone after we had decided to go through IVF that was basically condemning our, our decision for, you know, 14 reasons. And I felt, we felt so invaded and so hurt. We had not asked for this person's feedback. Uh, and I remember just shutting that down. Um, via email I said we did not ask you for this I thank you never to bring this up again and I think yeah. so so two things I would say to anyone that's dealing with that number one <clears throat> if one of your friends is pursuing adoption or IVF do not give feedback unless it is asked for if you are part mm -hmm. of the the special circle of people that you, that they are inviting feedback then by all means be sensitive and be kind if you are not, then just assume that that your words are not welcome <laughs> because it's so complicated and so complex. And then the second thing I would say, I'd be interested to hear what you would say to this too, Elizabeth, is if someone does give you unwanted feedback and people do all the time when you're going through, <laughs> feel very free to kindly but firmly say no thank you and i would really i would really thank you to 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 not give any more feedback on this area um did people ever come to you with suggestions you know my aunt who's 94 <laughs> years old got pregnant because she drank kombucha 72 days in a row or you know then you'll have a baby yeah yeah, just yeah. relax. Just don't yeah. relax. Try it. Try try this. This position. This. Yeah. I mean, it just gets so silly. Um, and P everyone, you know what I found, Liz? Everyone wants to be the expert that helps you get pregnant. Everyone yeah. thinks that they have the the thing, and you know, so it's like people. You just need to know you probably don't have the solution <laughs> for your infertile friends. You probably don't. <laughs> Yeah, but I think what what um, your friends going through infertility want from you is to be able to be heard sometimes. I mean, and for what they have to say to be okay. And it's okay if you don't have a, you know, brilliant response of, you know, godly wisdom from on high to offer them. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can just hear their pain, you yeah. know, uh, people that were able just to hear and sit with me in the tears, um or, and the disappointment, I mean, that's, you don't have to, I mean, that, I think that's just good pastoral care, no matter what it is. Yeah. If we can learn to sit with one another in pain, which is very hard to do, but it's such a gift when we can. Yep, I agree. All right, so Elizabeth, um, tell me about the title of your book, um, Birthed, Finding Grace Through Infertility. How did you come up with it? It was quite a long um journey. Um, when I originally started writing the manuscript and my, I could go back to the file on my computer, it was called unsilencing the grief. Mm. Um, and, uh, I think in many ways what the book is, is unsilencing the grief, telling this, the, the raw real story of what it's like to go through infertility. But, uh, my publisher said that, um, 
negative words don't sell books. So <laughs> there yes. you go. Yeah. So we don't want a negative word, but honestly, I'm really happy where it, it landed, um, with the word birth. Um, because to me, the book is not about, well, do, do they have a child in the end or they, they don't, or what happens with this treatment or this procedure? What I really hope that, that readers gain from it, no matter if they've gone through infertility or not, it's a story about how grief and pain and loss transform us. And, I think now when I look back on this season of my life, I say how thankful I am for it. Not in some Pollyanna Christian Christianity sort of way. Right, right. right. Just, uh, you know, pain in us births something beautiful that often no other season in life can. And I think from the experience of of being so beaten down um, and so discouraged and so, you know, even losing, you know, my faith at certain moments, I think God birthed in me, um, the person that I am today. And I think it's a more vulnerable person. I think it's a more authentic person, somebody who's, I think I'm willing to ask for what I need and have deeper relationships, um, that I wouldn't have had if it weren't for this, this journey. And, and I'm, um, I, I really hope that for any readers that they can see whatever, deep pain they have in their life that it doesn't have to be the end of the story that resurrection is always possible that sunday is always coming and um something beautiful can can come from it um and it's not just about getting what you want in the end um it's about god doing something that you could have never imagined and i'm writing a new book um so i think this is not the end of the birth that there'll be uh, another story to tell which is what has come next out of this experience. So. Oh, fantastic. Yay. I'm glad to hear that. Um, okay. So last question, uh, what do you hope, like, let's, so we're going to put the, so on my show notes, everybody, um, will put links to Elizabeth's blog and to places where you can buy her book. So I hope you do buy the book. Uh, but Elizabeth, what do you hope people take away from this? Maybe people that are experiencing infertility, maybe people who have friends that are going through infertility, what do you hope people walk away with? Most of all, I, I hope that you feel like after reading it, you you and I have just sat down and had a conversation. I mean, I love going to lunch with people yeah. for three hours, you know, where you really feel like you you know them. And, and I feel like, you know, it's a chance for me to get to know people and you to get to know me that wouldn't otherwise happen. But yeah. as far as a, a takeaway, um, I hope that you see in your journey that what you're experiencing, um, no matter how painful or awful it may be, that that God is somehow at work in the midst of these circumstances and that something um, beautiful can come from your pain. And, mm-hmm. and most of all, for those who are experiencing infertility like Kevin and I have, you don't feel so alone. I mean, I am thankful for other uh, writers that I encountered during this time who I felt like wrote in such a way that described their experience of infertility. And I said, oh, yes, that's how I feel. And I, I would love for you, if this is part of your story and you're reading it, to be like, yes, yes, that's how I felt. Or that's what it was like when we went to a doctor and they told us this. Or this was like to, to be invited to a baby shower and have to say no for the 15th time or whatever it may be, that you will not feel so alone um, yeah. because that's a gift. Um, Beautiful. All right, people. We'll check Elizabeth out on her blog, Preacher on the Plaza. 
by her book, Birthed, Finding Grace Through Infertility. Again, I'll have both of those links on the show note. If you need a wedding pastor, I mean, get a hold of Elizabeth Hagen. She travels, I am sure, uh, and she would do an incredible job on your wedding. Uh, and we're really excited to uh, take a look at your next book as well. So, Thank you. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for being honest and for um, I just even as we were talking, I just I just had all the I mean, it's been a long time for us, about 10 years since we had our first born. But I mean, all those feelings are so accessible. They're so I mean, they're still I, I remember the hope, the hopelessness, the questions, the weird feedback, the I mean, just all kinds of that stuff. So thank you for being honest. Um, I know that your book is going to help a bunch of people. And, uh, and I hope that in the midst of it all, you find your own piece of sanity in publishing a book as beautiful and hard and <laughs> awesome and ah, vulnerable. And so, and especially when you write about something as vulnerable as this. So uh, my prayers are for you and Kevin to experience, and Amelia, uh, your new little five-year-old, five-month-old, to experience uh, even grace in that, grace in the publishing, grace in uh, people that get in contact with you that your book helps. So um, at the end of the podcast, we always have this mantra, and so I will say it to you um, because I think infertility is just so much a part of uh, reclaiming what's human about, uh, what's holy about our humanity. That's sort of the tagline of of our podcast. But uh, we say we are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy and we're in it together. So we definitely feel that way about you. Uh, thanks so much, Elizabeth, and um, peace on your process. Thank you so much.